I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly. I'm Patrick Jenkins, bringing you the weekly roundup of the key stories in the banking industry. Firstly, on the show this week, when is a default a default? Answer, no one knows if it's Greek debt. Secondly, Axel Weber goes to UBS, so who will take the helm at Deutsche Bank? And finally, how will Britain's new Financial Conduct Authority work? With me in the studio this week are Megan Murphy, Brooke Masters, and our special guest star, Richard Mill, a capital markets editor. Uh, and Richard, you're here to talk about Greece, our first story. Um, French and German banks plan to roll over their holdings uh, of Greek debt have suffered a blow uh, today, as Standard & Poor's credit rating agency said the move would amount to a selective default. Richard, what exactly is a selective default and does it really matter? Oh, that's that's the big question. A uh, selective default differs from, from a default. It can be very temporary. Sometimes these last uh, only one day. Um, the problem is the French uh, proposal, as set out last week, made it the entire rollover conditional on the not being a downgrade to default, of which this would be the case. Now, just to remind everyone, uh, last week emerged that the French banks had come together with, with the sign-off of the of the French government, had put a proposal out there for the whole of the Eurozone to kind of sign up to, which would roll over uh, a substantial amount of Greek debt um, uh, with for up to 30 years. This is the kind of private sector participation. In other words, the, the, the holders of Greek debt would sign up to this, the, the private sector holders. And, and they would try and raise about 30 billion euros in, in new financing for Greece. Yes. So is it clear this selective default, obviously it matters more if it's uh, relates to, the, to Greece as a, an issuer of debt or to specific uh, bonds? Is well, so clear? the S and P say that they would uh, downgrade Greece itself to selective default, and then to any of the bonds that mature in two thousand and eleven that would then be rolled over into new issues. They would break that D for default. Uh, the thing is that this um, the wiggle room comes because uh, after selective default, as soon as the rollover takes place, Greece would then get a, a new issuer credit rating, which would presumably be at least as high as its current rating which unfortunately for Greece is triple C which is the world's lowest uh, sovereign rating um, but there is the potential that S&P would analyse the situation anew and if they thought that Greeks debt burden was more sustainable it could get a higher rating so it's a, it's a slightly technical point but the for some reason at the moment they've made the entire proposal conditional on this point. Now, Megan, this uh, potentially matters a lot because because of the European Central Bank's attitude to bonds that are technically in default. Yeah, it's a it's a big it's a big mess. A little bit. Um, I just was in Athens last week, and it was widely held assumption among senior Greek bankers that there would be they would be it would be unavoidable for them to escape a selective defaults rating on this. Now, why that matters so much is because the ECB has taken a very hard stance 
um, and said that we will no longer accept Greek debt as collateral for the loans that we're providing to the Greek financial system if there is a default rating, a selective default rating or a default rating. Now, you know, Greek banks are dependent on the ECB for their everyday financing needs. They've been closed out of the wholesale markets for more than a year. They're borrowing close to 100 close billion to 100 at the billion. moment. Yeah. Um, and so that poses a really, really significant problem. So the issue is... Because without that money, how can the Greek they economy can't. function? There is, how can there is a 30 billion fund that the government has set up, which is possible, which they haven't tapped into yet, 30 billion worth of liquidity in the government's sort of current plan, which obviously are trying to replace with the second bailout. And it looks like that's going to be weeks away. But um, it's either we're going to see the rating agencies have to get more comfortable with this proposal and it's going to be worked out in the coming weeks to avoid a selective default or the ECB is going to have to modify its stance, which would be a credibility issue for them as well. Or as Richard says, and I think what some consensus is, is that we could just have a sort of day-long selective default or you know a week-long. But if it's any longer than that, um, at least the bankers I spoke to are very, very concerned for what sort of a prolonged selective default rating means just for... Yeah. There's, there also seems to be some wiggle room. Uh, I mean, Richard mentioned to a degree of that anyway, but maybe between the different rating agencies and what the ECB uh, stance is if, let's say, Moody's and Fitch don't take the same view as S&P, they can kind of take the more optimistic stance. Well, they they did under accepting uh, Greek collateral in the first place. They they insisted that it had to be investment grade, and I think it was Moody's that was the last to downgrade. Um, uh, and they kept on to the best rating until right. that downgrade. But I guess that example also shows, in a way, the you wonder why the system um, and you look at the ECB last week complaining about the oligopoly of rating agencies while mm. it cedes so much power to rating agencies. Who, after all, uh, received a bit of a drubbing in the financial crisis. Well, they did, but it's also to, to, to give any to give to an outside group. I mean, essentially, you're almost giving them a say on the future of, of the euro. Yeah, right? I mean, as, as one banker said to me, you know, why is this group of private sector entities allowed to decide the future of the eurozone? You know, yeah, it's ridiculous. Right. Um, so it... It's definitely, I think, something that's an issue that's going to have to be dealt with. And this comes at a time when, of course, the U.S. is deliberately stripping credit rating agencies out of its regulatory process as much as, much as it can for exactly those reasons. And it raises the question whether the EU is going to regret not having done so more quickly. And that's I think rating, rating agencies themselves are nervous about how dependent the system is on them. Mm. One final uh, point worth making is, you know, it's unclear what actually is going to happen with this proposal uh, for rollover, because this is the, something that came out of the French system. Uh, it seems to have a broad consensus behind, you know, this being the right thrust of things. But a lot of the significant details haven't got support, I don't think, from the other key holders of the debt, um, which are German institutions. And uh, I think it'll... Uh, emerge probably only over the next week or two what to what degree Germany supports both the details of the interest rate on the proposed rollover bonds and also the uh, duration of the 30-year th proposal. But anyway, we'll we'll watch that very closely over the next uh, next week or two. Um, let's move on now to the interesting battle that emerged late last week between UBS, uh, the Swiss bank, and Deutsche Bank. Now, Megan, uh, UBS 
pulled off something of a coup, really, by snatching the uh, a new chairman in the form of uh, Axel Weber, the former Bundesbank president, appointing him as their chairman after Deutsche had been courting him to do a similar role there for months. This is a bit of a blinder, isn't it? Um, absolutely surprised. Just one little technical point is he'll become chairman in, in 2013, as it's currently yeah. designed. Um, abs- you know, I think both of us, probably everyone in this room, was very surprised to see this announcement when it crossed our desk. Um, all the cards had indicated that Mr. Weber was going to go to Deutsche Bank in some sort of capacity. Uh, obviously, it's a very big coup for UBS, which fortunes have been tarnished um, in the crisis and has been struggling to rebuild, you know, the one vaunted institution that it was. But for Deutsche, it is a hugely embarrassing Mm. blow to a succession process, which has been a mess for a year, more than a year now, two years, you know, ongoing. And um, again, it raises the question of Anshu Jain and where he fits in. And just to, you know, for readers, for listeners who don't listen to us all the time, Mr. Jain is the head of Deutsche Bank's um, corporate and investment bank, which generates by far the lion's share of the bank's profits and um, where he fits in and whether this is a positive or a negative in terms of his succession chances. I mean, what are your what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think the key question is that Mr. Weber's possible entry into Deutsche Bank, either as a supervisory board chairman or as a kind of co-CEO alongside Mr. Jane, gave um, Mr. Jane a, a real big uh, chance of of getting that top job in either alone or, or as a co job. But without Mr. Weber, I don't know. It, it really does look quite difficult. How do you how do you resolve that? There's no. Everyone tells me that there's no sense that anyone's looking outside the bank anymore that it's going to have to be an internal appointment. And then, actually, there aren't a huge number of obvious people, certainly with the kind of heft that someone like Ackerman or Weber um, currently hold. I mean, the problem, too, is if you don't appoint Anshu, what are investors going to say now as well? I mean, he is... I mean, a very clear favorite of of certain groups of investors. He lacks the sort of German, you know, the Germanness, I guess, that you know is being demanded. Well, that's why the the Weber Anschu kind of combination was a was a perfect one. It just seems they've got themselves into a real pickle over this. And if you know, if I were a shareholder in Deutsche, I'd be pretty upset about how this has been handled. They've had several mm. years. To, well, to no get wonder this. that the noise coming out of the bank, uh, particularly in Frankfurt, is one of. Uh, real kind of crisis uh, relationship uh, now having evolved between Ackerman and uh, Clements Berzig, the head of the supervisory board, whose job it is to plan this succession. Um, Obviously, comparison being made between now uh, this kind of messy succession process and uh, what happened a couple of years ago when Mr. Ackerman was due to retire and no one had been found to replace him uh, by Mr. Berzig and therefore Ackerman ended up staying for another few years and I know Richard when you were in Frankfurt you were there kind of uh, soon after anyway the the, the whole process of, of succession had, had been another big row there when actually when um, Ackerman was first first appointed to the job. Yes well I mean this is a company that's had probably almost a decade to start thinking about these things and mm. it's fluffed its lines now twice in a row I mean it's extraordinary I think um just stepping back, looking at other companies, there's a lot of focus on succession, and you see when it comes down to the crunch how poorly prepared a lot of these companies are. Yeah. And I think also if you look at Ackerman's uh, 
uh, time at the bank, um, his lack of uh, he, he's uh, Swiss. I mean, if you look at his his lack of uh, sort of uh, fingerspitzgefühl, as they say, a finger tip feeling in in yeah. Germany has been a big problem, and I think that's why some people would be worried about Jane coming in. Um, you know, Deutsche Bank is hugely important politically in Germany. Yeah, they clearly need to find a solution. To I it. mean, and just a final point is it really is starting to damage his legacy, Ackermann's legacy at the bank, which um, is unfortunate in several ways uh, because it's becoming sort of the only topic people are talking about um, with respect to the bank and sort of how much people are going to look back at what has been, you know, he's presided over a time when he's been, you know, withstood the crisis well and has become, you know, one of the dominant players. Uh, mm. And it's... Well, I think there's a, there's a sense of desperation from from him, probably, but also from Mr. Berzig. Uh, uh, over the weekend um, in, in the German press, there were kind of... There was noise that uh, Mr. Berzig was adamant that he was going to find a successor by September and he was going to name him and so on, clearly feeling the pressure. But equally, as we were told, um, Mr. Ackerman now uh, himself prepared to kind of take on the role of supervisory board chairman, presumably pushing out Mr. Berzig before his time. Uh, he's due to be there for another couple of years, as indeed is Mr. Ackerman, but it's all coming to a head at the moment. So it's a horrible mess. Anyway, um, our final topic for today, uh, the new FCA, one of the two successors to the Financial Services Authority in the UK. It's announced plans to build its own business and market analysis team so that it can spot looming problems and address the root causes of consumer harm. Is this uh, encouraging news, Brooke? I think it depends who's paying for it. If you're paying for it, it's probably not all that encouraging. It is true. The FCA, which is basically the policeman half of the Financial Services Authority, they're going to police the markets looking for insider dealing and bad behavior. They're going to police how everybody from the big banks to the little IFAs treat their customers. And they're going to police what kind of stuff gets sold in the UK. It is good that they are going to try and do some independent research and try to come to their own view whether products are good or bad. Um, classic example is, you know, the U.S. has been raising concerns about exchange traded funds and mis-selling to consumers now for well over 18 months. And it has really only come to the attention of the U.K. in really the last four or five months. It'd be nice if they did some real horizon spotting. Whether the FCA, with the budget it has, can afford to hire talented people who can actually do this is a really open question. And if they hire sort of mediocre people, then it's a lot of expense for no particular gain. Megan, are you hopeful? Look, you know, I mean, I think <laughs> listeners to the show will know my feelings about the FSA's um, ability to future horizon spot, let alone to do like ordinary things that are going on every day in the market. But I mean, what I always worry about with this is it's just another sort of creation of an entity with a new name, with the same old people who just aren't that level that they need to have at that agency. There just isn't enough. Um, going from the public sector to the private sector, there isn't enough, uh, there just aren't enough really good people there. And uh, will this change things? I'm not hopeful. Um, I think it's a lot of words. But again, with the FSA is with everything, the proof is in the pudding. And if they can deliver um, change, that will be welcome. But, you know, we haven't seen a tremendous amount of, uh, in terms of when you compare it to the US, that's an unfavorable comparison. Yeah. 
One good thing I suppose one could say is Margaret Cole, who's now the acting head of the part of the FSA that will become the FCA, did do a fairly good job of improving the quality of people who worked in enforcement. She came into a completely demoralized and frankly incompetent division. And while you know they're still not you know winning prizes, they're certainly much more credible than they were five years ago. And that was done by recruiting higher quality people, paying them more, and making it a more interesting and rewarding place to work. If they can do the same thing for the people who are supposed to be, you know, protecting consumers and spotting trends, that would be a really good thing. It's not clear to me that they can, but at least there's there's one example that they've made some real strides. And the nagging problem that overrides everything is that uh, in, internal kind of focus on restructuring, uh, the danger is that that, you know, takes the eye off spotting the problems in the market, I guess. Anything could be happening right now, to yeah. be honest. Everybody's worrying about whether their email address is going to work because, you know, when they retire the FSA email, will there be something to replace it? Quite. Well, that's sadly all we have time for today. All that's left for me to do is to thank Megan, Brooke and Richard in the studio. And thank you for listening. Banking Weekly was produced by Rob Minto. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.